Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting the intersection of spirituality, politics, and philosophy in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, <laughs> one of my closest friends, a poet, once told me that her first word as a child was no. And she said that that was a huge part of how she became a poet, that the world wouldn't stay in place for her unless she permitted it. (laughs) And I love this because it indicated to me that there was something about seeing things differently, uh, about the world opening up for her through a refusal to just accept the inherited language that fixed objects, that fixed definitions, that fixed the explanations and the lines. Today's episode is with poet Stephen Sexton, and it features his reading of poetry from his amazing book, If All the World and Love Were Young, which is about death and Super Mario World. Each poem is named after and loosely follows a level in the game, and it helped me understand just how deeply poetry can go. I mean, I've had all these uh, frustrations or confusions around how we fit our view of games, console games, video games, you know, all this into our lives when we want to consider the world spiritually. And Stephen's poetry really relevates all of that for me. We also talk about light and surfaces and the dead and the way repetition works. We talk about his other two amazing books, um, Oils and the upcoming book, Cheryl's Destinies. So we talk about the playing of console games as spells and as a sort of suppressed kind of pornography about writing uh, an elegy made up of poems to put grief into a game and turning that game into a monument. We talk about the tarot and how to make a time horse. <laughs> You'll see what I mean. <laughs> Stephen's poetry, I think, really gives people a doorway in, or maybe like a green pipe, a portal to a strange world that is our own world through poetry, just like my friend's word no gave to her when she was a child. I know that people who are interested in poetry often sing its praises to the bafflement of those who don't read it. And I also know that a lot of those people spend a lot of time defending poetry. Um, Here's poetry's value, here's what it does, all that kind of stuff. And I know I'm doing a little bit of that at the top of the episode, but it's just to say that I think poems and poetry are so much more profound than any of us realize. And also to say that I think (laughs) that's why I've done so many episodes on poetry and why some of those episodes are my very favorite of the show, because I think it helps us sort of take apart the world or or maybe put it together completely differently. It's not just about reading something, although it can be sometimes as well. Um, I've done episodes with D.A. Powell about the queer esoteric power of a poem uh, on episode 73 with Zachary Schomburg about poetry and violence and fear, which was episode 40, with Maggie Nelson, who also writes nonfiction um, about writing and desire. Um, I talk about poetry at length with my friend Mona El-Tahawi. We both read poems that have infused our spirit against cruelty, 
and with theologian and poet and scholar Padre Kotuma, uh, that was episode 81, about how poetry points us to God, to loneliness, and to communion with each other. Poetry sends us in so many directions, and so I'm excited to share this episode with you, to send you into so many directions, because we really go into so many. And rather than linger in the intro like I often do. Uh, I'm just going to get into it because <laughs> we go over so much. I will say, though, before we start, if you appreciate this show, if this show holds meaning for you, if it helps you redefine the shape of things in your life, or maybe you find yourself talking about the show with friends, please do support it via Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Conrabib. I don't have corporate sponsors. I have a relationship with listeners, and I would love uh, if you went to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and supported the show now. Thank you. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with poet Stephen Sexton. Here we go. Hey, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib, and I'm very excited to be talking with you, Stephen Sexton. Hello. Hi, Connor. Lovely to be here. Um, we're going we're gonna to uh, start the episode with you reading a poem called Gnarly from your book, If All the World and Love Were Young. But um, before we start it, I want to say one of the reasons I'm having you read it is because I want to talk about light and light comes up in that poem a lot. And I was thinking about a poem from one of my favorite books of poetry called The Man Made of Rain by Brendan Kennelly, another Irish poet. And there's a line in there that is, uh, I want to read the history of light, but that's a history no one made of flesh can write. And um, it put me in mind of this poem of yours. So let's start there and then we'll talk. Gnarly. I tried to make a monument out of the pink wisteria and to shape from the lands of light, cartilage from cartography, from rolling green and glowing plains and five-jointed springboard launchers and vines that beanstalk from a box, cumulus, cumulonimbus, cirrus attended by sundogs seen by ships at sea soon to sink, from forests of pupae furies of carnelian or ruby, from countless spiny crawling sprites duplicated as pathogens, from Osterberg and Orbison and Beethoven and Nine Inch Nails, from anthropomorphic stone heads and fortresses near, far and wide, from falling dreams, sweet streams that flow the length of the garden planted with roses and honeysuckle, with foxgloves and wild funguses, I tried to make a monument from the cathode rays blasting streams of electrons behind a screen, from quarries, fox hunts and gunshots, from gillies dipped low and fleck tarn scouting the forest on the hill. I want my monument to be composed of light, as you might say, so you can see it, friend. Not things themselves, but the seeing of them, the light stopping on them. Tree, I adore you. I adore you, world. It's such a great poem, and it it takes place um, in the special world section of the book, which is uh, in Super Mario World, the the world you get to by 
um, navigating, like you open like a star portal basically, and then you finish the stuff in the star world and then you get to the special world. Um, (laughs) so, and, and in the special world image, it's like a light bright almost like the, like where it says special world. I went back and did like a walkthrough of the game before we (laughs) did the, um, I mean, I watched a walkthrough of the game before recording this. So it's fresh in mind, but it says special world in these like bright, light, bright kind of lights. So I want to talk about that monument of light and, um, and the way that looking at that on a, on a screen at a certain point in your life and, and what that might mean, but also other monuments of light that aren't just that in that, you know, located in that world or just from looking at a video game. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thanks for doing the research. I did a lot of that research myself um, with, with Super Mario. Um, but one of the things that's particularly um, potent, I think, about that part of the game and was for me as a, as a young person is that's the part of the game where it becomes kind of self-aware, where the levels are named after their own kind of qualities. So they're, they're less about like the landscape, you know, uh, each each world having its own set of um, characteristics or qualities. It's the part of the game where yeah, the game becomes self-aware and starts telling you about its own difficulty or the, you know, designers ran out of patience naming things or, or bits were left over, but, you know, gnarly and tubular and way cool and uh, awesome and groovy and all these, um, yeah, strange slang. Um, so this is the moment in the, in the game where, yeah, it becomes, it becomes self-aware and starts kind of telling you about its own difficulty. Um, I mean, for me, what this book is about is not really Super Mario. Um, it's, it's about elegy. It's about trying to understand um what grief is like is trying to understand what the world is like after after my mother's death um and this in in the book this is the part where the book starts to be pretty frank about what's happened you know it starts to say this is what i'm trying to do i'm trying to make this um out of light i'm trying to make this object from the from the light uh, super mario's quest is made of yeah well so <clears throat> first of all i don't want to <laughs> i feel like i've i've read a lot of uh, like short little interviews or listen to them of you. And I, and I realize that everybody spends a lot of time talking about games and Mario with you. Um, when <laughs> in fact, like actually this book is also about your mother's death. <laughs> and I was thinking, Oh, that's really interesting, but we are going to talk about games and <laughs> like a little bit, but rest assured, we'll, we'll talk about a lot of other things as well. This is just the sort of opener. Um, but I'm reminded also, you know, I mean, just sort of bringing those two things together, um, you know, not, you know, so, uh, so you can see it from not things themselves, but the scene of them, the light stopping on them. There's a book by a Italian occultist who ended up being, I think, a bit of a fascist, although I haven't really researched that so much myself. This guy, Massimo Scaligero, called The Light. And in that book, the first line is something like, you know, the light we see is not the light, but the dying of the light. In other words, as soon as the, the thing that we see is actually the disappearing of the quality of the light into us. So think the world kind of dies into us. And I think that that's, it's a really potent line, the light stopping on them but then for you to move from that into adoration, uh, 
you know, so I've, I just read in that or hearing that as you read it as well, this sort of tenderness of like, well, there's a stopping of the light, but actually that leads me to an appreciation and adoration, a kind of love. So, you know, we'll talk about death in some of your other poems, but I'm just wondering if that's where some of this led you, that kind of appreciation and the stopping. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not someone who knows a tremendous amount about the, the physics of it, but yeah, I guess that's how we see, right, that something impedes um, light, that something that that light does not pass through, um, which, you know, makes it visible as such. Um, and yeah, I totally agree. There's this sense of, um, yeah, it being kind of finite. I mean, I guess I'm dealing with a couple of different kinds of light, I think, um, moving through this. There's the idea that one, uh, you know, one is one is perceiving a screen, you know, I guess I'm really interested in surfaces of things. Um, I'm really interested in um, representations of things. Um, the other, uh, the other major thing about light is, you know, light as a kind of treatment that, that, you know, radiotherapy is, is, is light being used and that it's that, you know, electrons um, in, in this, that is, that is moving in a similar kind of way, these projections. Um, and there's the certain kinds of light that penetrate and certain kinds of light that don't penetrate um, and how one is seeing and one is, I guess, um, medicinal um or, or therapeutic in some way um so yeah i guess i'm i'm trying to trying to think about all this yeah this light um the 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 role that that light has in in i guess commemoration and perception and interpretation in medicine uh, as well mm-hmm. well it's a, it's interesting too like when you because i've heard you say that in a way you could almost say that some of these poems are sort of nature poems like you know, though you're writing about Super Mario World, you're writing about a landscape that doesn't change. One of the things that doesn't change about it is actually everything is is illuminated all at once. You know, like even the darkness is a kind of colored in light there in that world, right? Um, so it's not it's not that uh, <laughs> like there is no shadow in that world, which I think is also really interesting because things are flat. Like it's all generated by light, you know, of a certain of a certain shape and a certain quality in that sense where you think, where, where you say, okay, I'm looking at what the nature of this place is. Like, how can I slow it down? How can I actually look around and see it? It seems as if you've come up with this kind of, um, yeah, like there is a kind of like a taxonomy, a cartography or whatever. I mean, you do have the whole list of nouns sort of at the end of the book, which is, which is great. Um, as the cast, you know, like in the closing credits, but, but it's not, um, but when you do this kind of nature writing of it, you're not writing directly about the game. Like, sure, there are the characters, there's Bowser's in the book, right? But it's not that you are making a kind of field guide to Mario. In fact, it it retranslates as you're writing the sort of nature poem about this world. Yeah, I mean, I guess the word that I, I have been thinking about is is the idea of the pastoral, um, whatever that kind of phenomenon is, and it's it's something that we associate with with landscape, with countryside, with nature. Um, but I guess what the pastoral is, um, and furthermore, like what the kind of pastoral elegy is, which is something that we that, that I'm doing a lot of here, um, it deals in imaginary spaces. You know, the nature poem is an imaginary space. Like it's not, it doesn't correspond to real nature. I mean, you read a nature poem, you can't go and walk in it. You can. You can read it, though. You can you can see it. it you know, it exists of images um, or it's made up of images. So I guess what I was trying to do at the same time is 
you know, have a, have a similar kind of nature poem. Um, by nature poem, I mean one that is made up of, you know, images that you, you can't actually perceive with anything other than the eye, really. Um, so, you know, Mario's landscape uh, that he walks in is not fundamentally, in my opinion, it's not fundamentally different from, you know, Wordsworth's landscape. Um, the, the, what they have in common is that we can be in neither of them. Um, we can look at them, we can imagine them, we can see how, you know, things correspond in a kind of platonic sense, you know, that there's a tree over here. Um, mm. What kind of tree is it? Um, where I grew up, there was a holly tree in the garden um, and there are, you know, trees with little red berries in it in Mario. So why don't I translate that as holly tree? Why aren't these the, the same thing? Um, so I, I'm thinking of, of place as as imagined place, as unreal place um, that is made up of these these symbols, you know, these things sort of detached from their, you know, the, the real things that uh, Mario was wandering around. Um yeah, a kind of world of things that correspond to to other things. Uh, so not not real places. So I guess my my interest, I suppose, is is in yeah images, symbols, uh, things that aren't uh, they're not real places. Does it does it feel like that? I mean, does it feel like that walking through a real landscape to you sometimes? That they aren't real places. Yeah, or I mean. You know, just the way you're talking about it, I just hear you sort of creating a kind of, yeah, like a link or a bridge or or a sort of inner agreement between the two or an inner sort of conversation between two. But yeah, so I'm wondering (laughs) if you're saying why not look at the holly bush or, you know, why not look at the bush in the game, like the holly bush or whatever. Like, I'm just wondering if that gets brought back like if you brought something from the fairy world or whatever back into the walking around in the real landscape and it's it's changed that view as well um a a little bit i guess i mean i think lately over the last while everything's been kind of strange that we look at you know (laughs) you know we're framed we look you know we perceive the world through the frame of a window right you know and we you know I, i guess what i'm really interested in um and it's where this book kind of started with is is looking you know and and everything to do with looking um you know, the political act that is looking, all this kind of stuff, um, and how one, yeah, one interprets by looking, um, how you make things from, from, from that act of looking. So, um, and, you know, that, that is, that is, I guess, coming from a, an interest in, in visual art and an interest in, um, you know, the internet, to be honest, you know, I mean, the internet's mm-hmm. the perfect kind of example of images and text living together. So I think when I, um, my my understanding of images has has been one that's grown um, alongside using the internet um, as trying to understand what role an image has that text doesn't have. Um, yeah, so my I guess I'm I'm coming at everything from a sense of of image, um, which is to say a sense of distance. You know that that one might not reach out and touch it, that one sees it. Um, you know you don't um, the, the the only sense you use is the one of vision, um, not the yeah. others. Um, by creating distance, you know, and, and the distance that that creates and how reliable and unreliable um, sight is as a way of perceiving things. Yeah, there's that old, there's that uh, old, um, but it is, I mean, it feels old because it had a really big moment for a while, but there's that old essay scene by Annie Dillard where she describes the experience of people who were blind and regained their sight and they walk into walls and everything because actually one of the fundamental aspects of sight is that we see we don't, we don't see dimensionality with sight. Like that's apprehended by a blending of other things with the sense of sight. And so actually all we see really, and this will, this fucks people up when you, 
want to try to do it. But if you look, all you see is a color against a color, against a color, against a color, you know? And so in some ways there's a real honesty to that Mario world, which expresses itself that way. I mean, it's, it's weird too, you know, like I <laughs> heard you in your Rooney prize acceptance say that, um, you know, Mario just, he just goes from left to right his whole life. And I, and I was thinking about that and I was like, we can never, like no human being can ever go from left to right. Like we're always facing forward. It doesn't matter what we do. Like the world is open before us. Like there is no movement like Mario's movement. And, you know, when we talk about, I jumped in the game, we're not jumping. And in a lot of, a lot of ways, that's very dreamlike, you know? I mean, when people say, I saw this in the dream, I felt this in the dream, I touched this. I'm like, no, you didn't. Like your eyes were closed and you were lying in bed, you know? So, um, there's a real honesty to that unreality that you're talking about that I really appreciate. Uh, yeah, I mean, there were other things that interested me about that that movement too. I mean, I haven't I haven't thought about it in those ways, right? That you're always facing forward, but yeah, Mario moves left to right. Um, you know, I, I guess I, I'm thinking of it in terms of of how we read um, in English, how language you know is organized um, syntactically and on a page. It's always left to right, and in you know, I guess as far as a poem is concerned, in English, again, you know, it moves left to right, you know, and um, it encounters hopefully interesting things, um, you know, in that sweep from left to right, it, it, you know, it might involve obstacles of um, thought or imagination or clarity or punctuation or anything like that. But, you know, I guess I'm always trying to approximate this movement of, of left to right to make Mario's movement left to right, you know, the sweep of a line uh, of a, a, you know, a, a line of verse that it, it moves like this. Um, and that is this, this sort of destiny to do it over and over again. Yeah. Well, it's funny because a poem by virtue of the line breaks and enjambment, like it has cliffs, like it has precipices that regular, regular writing doesn't have. So, you know, it, it, it mocks the game in that way. Like you never know when you're going to have to jump. Right. <laughs> and so like, even I took a screenshot just cause I was thinking about it, of the opening screen of super Mario world and the enjambment, like the spacing is so weird in the opening text, which is welcome exclamation point. This is dinosaur land in this strange land. We, and I'm just trying to read the spaces, you know, we find that, Princess Toadstool is missing again. <laughs> Looks like Bowser is at it again. <laughs> and the spaces between the words, it's so bizarre. <laughs> I remember looking at that because there's a lot of interesting examples of, of text that, that, you know, that comes up in the game. Um, and they are kind of disappointing to the eye, right? They're not, they're not uh, the most aesthetically stunning movement, uh, moments in the, in the video game. Um, but yeah, no, I, I totally sympathize with reading those and thinking, "Wow, oh, wow, that's that's weird. What are those choices about? Why, why is it? Why is it? It could, you know, it could actually appear like a real notice, for example, like a real, you know, hmm. advertisement or sign or something in the in the game, but it um, it doesn't. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a really strange thing. And and like his name with his lives are hovering throughout the entire game. <laughs> in one corner and then there's like time and coins and all that. So like these re very like uh, metaphysical theological concepts, <laughs> like how much life do you have left? How much time do you have left? How much uh, money do you have? Like how connected to, there's like a star like number as well. Like how many stars do you have? 
stuff, like just hovering above him the whole time. There's this real sort of weird theological aspect to it. And we have to assume that, yeah, that he doesn't know it's there, I guess. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, so I guess what I find myself doing is, is finding ways of, of interpreting all these images, right, like into, you know, into well, into English and, and specifically into poetry in English and specifically into a certain kind of poetry in English. Um, but, you know, the way I kind of like to think about the, you know, what I've done is I've interpreted the game. I've, I've translated the game um, from its own, you know, visual language, its own set of signs um, into English. Like I've done that translation so poorly that I've ended up telling you a story about myself, mm. um, which kind of, you know, amuses me that the idea that, you know, the, the sort of interpretative um, steps I've taken are, so fanciful that I end up not really telling you very much about Mario um and you know, I, I and I guess what I find myself having to do is to make these calls right like well what what is a coin doing there what why you know what is what is Mario's kind of obsession with collecting these coins why are they littered everywhere um and you know when I when I find myself um having written a book that's you know that's about death I mean I you know I guess I find an opportunity to interpret that coin and um, you know, it feels like the coin, the penny that, you know, one pays the ferryman with, you know, that's why Mario, in my version, is collecting all these coins, because he needs them, you know, he, <laughs> he needs to do something with them. Um, and, you know, for, for Mario, his collection of coins is related to life and death, you know, it's, um, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know enough to, to make a nuanced economic statement here, but, you know, there, there's a connection, right? There's, there's a very clear one. Um, between, um, between between economy and life and death, um, which is maybe not so fanciful. Yeah, well, I mean, it is it is funny. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm just really interested in this idea of what you put in and what you leave out. Well, hold on. I want to say, first of all, now I think that someone needs to do an ethnography of Mario world, like where... They try to figure out the customs and the the value and the uses of the coins and all that kind of stuff. Like, why is it okay to jump on somebody's head and and kill them in that culture? Why <clears throat> all this sort of stuff? But um, you know, the human animal interactions. But I'm also interested in the stuff you left out. Like, it seems. I I don't know if you did this on purpose, but it was this really lonely. <laughs> moment where I was tracking the book with the game, right? With the walkthrough that I was watching. And I think it's in Yoshi's Island too. There's no mention of Yoshi (laughs) in your poem. And it's the moment where the text comes up and he makes friends with this animal and you've just left that friendship out. And so I was wondering about that, like, and it, I felt really lonely when I noticed that, like a feeling of real loneliness, but I don't know if you intended to inspire that or if you were just like, well, on to the next. You know, um, yeah. Um, Yoshi's um, presence in this is, is curious. Um, I don't, uh, I don't really know where, where he is. Um, I think I was aware of that loneliness that it is a single, you know, a sort of single journey throughout this kind of bewildering world. Um, but I guess also uh, Yoshi is an inconstant friend, you know, one can, one might lose him throughout this. He's got other stuff to attend to. Um, and in many ways, I guess it's true that it's as much his journey as it is everyone else's. I mean, he is, um, he's what starts the game. And I mean, there's some bizarre things, you know, where the first level as such of this game is Mario going to Yoshi's house, where he has left a sign 
to whom we don't really know, saying, uh, sorry, I've gone off to rescue my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of strange that, you know, in, in a literal sense, Mario's been in his house before he meets Yoshi. Mm. It's kind of strange. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it was another sort of level of, um, I think it was a level of complication that I just couldn't find a way to reconcile um, is, is the main reason why Yoshi isn't really um, present um, throughout these. Um, but I think that loneliness is, is important. This is a single person in a kind of overwhelming world. Yeah, well, so <clears throat> I wanted to move from there and maybe talk about repetition and transformation a little bit. So I'm wondering if you would read your poem Groovy, which also takes place in the uh, special world section towards the end of your book. Um, and then we'll and then we'll talk about that a bit. Groovy. I tried to make a monument from the emptiness of the house. The house in which everything starts, the berries and scarps, cactuses inching along in the verdure, mosses clinging to water pipes, but nothing would explain itself and things would only correspond. The house empty but for me is a highway in the wilderness, is a river in the desert, is a blue eye in the kettle, is a candle made of water, is a photograph on fire, is a church bell in the graveyard, is a letter I can't open, is a forest at Chernobyl, is a beached whale at Donegal, is fair-lined slippers for the cold, is buckles of the purest gold, is the fox hunt stalking the fields, is the fox guarding the hen house, is the cat among the pigeons, is the creek up in the rafters. When I returned to the empty house, it was no longer empty. Mm. Yeah. I think this is one of the most beautiful poems in the book. I mean, for me, the, the the movement, the transformation from one thing to the next, and then the reclamation at the end, it's something actually you do in quite a bit of your poems. Um, At the end of the line, you undo something. Um, And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more, but um, I think that there is something here where, the constant changing of the shape of something takes place. Um, We could talk about that in terms of levels in a game where the skins of the characters change on each level, but maybe not much else. It's just this sort of appearance. Um, But that continuity is a, is a, is a, is a, um, would you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, there's there's a couple of things that um, I realize again and again when I read it is 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 a um, becomes a kind of ambiguous statement through this. Like one thing literally is another thing, but it's also um, it's also a questioning uh, kind of formation to you know is a river in the desert is a blue eye in the mm-hmm. kettle. Um, so it, it's negotiating this this space between declaring something is something um, and also asking if it is something. So this kind of ambiguous uh, space. Um, but I think the main well, there's a couple of things about repetition, I think, that are important to me. I mean, one of them is, is you know, is related to the, the the kind of topography of the game where things are recycled, that, you know, that backgrounds happen over and over and over again. Um, but the main thing, I think, really about, about repetition and its role, maybe here and, and maybe elsewhere, is is this relationship to to elegy and to grief, that, that repetition um, in 
mm-hmm. you know, in the history of that kind of genre of writing, um, repetition is a tremendously important part of it. Um, that it's this kind of worrying away at a concept of this this person, um, you know, a speaker or subject, um, going over and over um, a certain thought, um, you know, in, in in terms of grief and trying to overcome it. Um, so it's this really big part. Um, that, that happens across the literatures and elegies um, um, and poems of, of grief more generally, the sense of repeating an action, um, trying to master an action and therefore trying to overcome something. Um, so that's what repetition, I think, is broadly doing. Um, and, you know, in the two poems that I have read, I mean, both of them have this sense of I'm trying to make a monument or, just, you know, I'm trying to do this. Um, so this sort of procedure is being, you know, scratched out again, the sense of I'm, I'm trying to do this. I'm telling you this is what I'm trying to do. Um, as if repeating something will make it happen, you know, that sort of movement of, um, you know, anxiety um, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I can think anybody, whether, I mean, death is one thing, but I, I think anybody can relate. It's like when you break up with somebody and then you're walking through town and you see all the places that you went with them and it, you know, the memory rushes in and it tethers, each image to their image and you can't get away from it, you know, but, but then there's, but then there is that. Um, so there's that questioning, that tethering, but there's also that transformative act that I think, you know, that happens in repetition as well. Um, you know, like in a fairy tale, the, everything is like repeated and repeated and repeated again, you know, um, someone has to say something like a bunch of times, but in a different context, it has a different effect. And, you know, there's something actually really flat. Well, there is something very flat about fairy tales is what fairy tale scholars often describe. Like you don't really descend into characters in a lot of ways. It's very Mario worldy. Like you don't deepen the commitment to the characters or their development exactly but what you get the sort of intensity and gratification out of in the fairy tale is seeing the repetitions, you know, uh, take on a new form, a new garb, a new um, sort of enchanted, you know, object will, will, will enter and it'll just have a sort of different function. So I don't know. I mean, for me, I, I mean, I've I've probably read this poem like ten times now, and just hearing you read it, it's like uh, that whale, the beach whale in Donegal. Like he kind of owns the poem <laughs> in a way for me. I don't know why I can't escape the image. So um, you know, I think maybe maybe somehow the the repetition or the the march through or the the movement through halts there for a minute because I want to hang out with the whale on the beach and look at it a little bit more, you know? It's kind of a bewildering um, image to me. I mean, I, I should say that, I mean, I have a hard time sort of thinking about a lot of these poems. Um, well, for a couple of reasons. One of them is that I don't really think of them as as poems in some ways. I mean, I, I feel I feel that this is a book made up of bits, you know, and I don't want to use, I don't want to use a word like fragments, but none of, very few of these poems feel like narratively or, um yeah, narratively satisfying to me on their own. A lot of them feel like they have this kind of edge. Um, yeah, maybe like you said, of undoing at the end of them. Like I, I, I guess I wanted, um, yeah, I, w- I wanted this sort of pixelated effect where none, you know, no um, individual poem felt like it was finished, um, which I think is a 
I, I, f- I figured it was kind of a risky thing to be doing, but I wanted this kind of total effect to be uh, of, of all of them working together um, to be the main one. So I have, I've, I have a hard time remembering what it was I thought I was trying to do. Um, you know, I guess even when I was writing, you know, individual uh, poems, because I was writing them one at a time, I was still trying, you know, I was, I was working towards this overall image. I didn't quite at the same time know what it was. Um, but I was also reading them really quickly and, you know, sort of discovered that um, in order to do that, um, I needed to trust some subconscious uh, director, um, you know, in me. So a lot of these, a lot of these images coming together, I sort of wonder what they're doing together. I can't really remember what they're doing together. Um, but yeah, there, that there is this kind of yeah, strange transformative thing. I mean, there it's, it's highly symbolic. There's all these things that are coming through and I don't really know what they're doing together. Um, so I sort of like following these strange kind of um, urges um, or, or imaginative like propulsions that, uh, mm. yeah, I was just writing all these things. So I kind of have to refer back to the level to find the, um, you know, I guess uh, <laughs> Roland Barthes has that kind of, you know, the, the, the idea of the, the punctum, you know, the thing that, that, that pricks your eye, uh, so to speak. So there, there will have been something in this level that made my imagination go down this, this kind of route. Um, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> yeah, but I love that. I mean, it, what, what you're saying, it kind of echoes the, the point that you've made or, or maybe that I was trying to elicit in you as well, where it's like, you know, it's the, the, the Gilles Deleuze concept of differences repetition. Like, we, you know, difference can only happen because things repeat. So when I meet you, <clears throat> you know, and I don't know who you are, and then I meet you again a year later, and I add to the meeting through the repetition. So like, now I know your name. Now I know the things I thought of you. Now I know the impression I had. And I, and I bring all that. And it's only by virtue of the repetition, you know, that I can add. And so life is a kind of additive process. It's funny that, it's funny that you're, you're adding the principle of subtraction here. Like, yeah, but I don't remember. But you have your own impression of it now, you know. And I really... I like that. I mean, it is just—it's just a grand question in general for you to for for you to ask. I think, and it's a really good one that I think about all the time. Like, why should my thought move from this thing to this thing? Why, if I'm trying to think of a cat, you know, and I'm thinking of a cat for two minutes, do I f- suddenly find myself thinking about you know um, this store I went to in Swords or something like that? Why did I move from here to there? It's such a, such a fucking thing. <laughs> the shape of the shape of the path, you know, that you take in your own thoughts. I, I, I suppose psychoanalysts think that they might be able to give some sort of handle on it. Um, but I love the question that you have for yourself as well here. Yeah, and you know, part of what I I was doing, I think, throughout it is is allowing certain kinds of thoughts to be seen. Um, mm. You know, there, there's, um, I wonder if I can get it right, but uh, I mean, one of the people who's a big influence on, well, my thinking kind of always is is the poet Anne Carson. And um, she has a marvelous book called Knox um, that is an elegy for her brother, um, which is a big influence on this, but she has a, a great line in it um, uh, where she, I guess the, the sort of subject is, she's talking about muteness um, and she describes it as a, um, what is it? Um, you know what? I'm not going to remember what it is. Um, <laughs> we might have to move, remove that bit. Um, but yeah, um, 
it's, it's I guess allowing things to be seen hiding um you know to to be to to allow certain aspects of um the way that thought works for me to be seen in this book I think there is a lot of that um where you know I'm you know the distance between you know for example at the start of it if there's if there's a cactus and I I interpret that as something with needles mm-hmm. you know like this active interpretation makes this a kind of you know, therapeutic one, um, that I don't see a cactus, I see it for its spines, um, I see it for its needles, which means that, you know, mm. and just allowing that thought to be seen so openly um, was was something that I guess I had to prepare myself for, that I'm, you know, I'm allowing my imagination to be seen at work, um, which is mm. something that, that interests me, um, and I, I hope that is seen as something that is you know, kind of, you know, that is frank, um, that is that is open, it's like, this is how I've made these um these these translations so to speak yeah yeah well um i will be bringing up ann carson later actually um (laughs) but the um the the thing that's interesting to me too about what you're saying is the prompts or the 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 cues or the propositions of a game you know they really are they really intense and unique in a way like if you're going through a level of this game and there's like a feather that pops out of a brick and floats down and then a giant bullet shoots at you, you know, <clears throat> that kind of imaginary um, pixelated space. I mean, that that's going to give you all sorts of prompts that are just truly unavailable anywhere else, you know? And, um, and I love that. <clears throat> and I even was thinking this wasn't super Nintendo, but do you remember game genie? where it was like a thing you would put on the Nintendo cartridge that would let you, first of all, I love the name game genie, but you would put it on a cartridge and it would allow you to bypass certain levels or get a, you know, get a, like an extra, whatever for the game, like an extra life or maybe an extra skin on one of the characters or whatever it was, but you'd have to do this absurd like pattern of directions on the Nintendo controller, which was a completely new language. <laughs> so like you look at it on the, on the page of the game genie manual and it's like up, down, start, 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 select up, down, left, right, A, B, A, B, you know? And so this whole sort of unfolding of codes, I was thinking about <laughs> that too. And just the position of your fingers when you were playing, you know, um, the, the movement of your fingers and how that itself is creates a different state of consciousness that would, even if you weren't playing the game, when you were writing these again, like it would be evocative of the movement of your hands, you know? Hmm. No, I, yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I mean, there's something, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's something very close to magic, right? Like a, a series of uh, very precise uh, maneuvers that would not come up, um, I guess we imagine, in any other circumstances. Or, or um, yeah, you must follow the, these instructions exactly um, in order to, <laughs> yeah, acquire um, acquire access to the other parts of it. Um, yeah, as far as what I was doing with this, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I I find myself just trying to interpret this as a, as a visual object, you know, and and. Mm. Um, and for that sense, you know, for that reason, a lot of the other senses were muted. You know, touch, I guess, wasn't one of them. And for me, this always this always seems associated with with looking. Um, and you know, one of the things that I, I did uh, some like kind of research into is 
you know, just just how how video games are configured. And you know, I, I remember coming across a really um, kind of yeah inspiring uh, quote by a guy called Peter Buse, who I think is a um, an academic um, of video games, but he he refers to um, video games as. I quote, uh, completing a circuit of specularity um, where you see yourself as someone else and you see yourself controlling a version of yourself as somebody else, mm. um, which which makes like a, a real, you know, it's a real thrilling kind of sense to me that, you know, and, and for that moment, for that circuit being completed, you know, you're you're sort of both seen and, you know, you're both the person who sees and the person who is seen um, and you're both the person who controls and the person who is controlled. Um, and you're both exactly where you are embodied, but you're kind of psychologically and imaginatively somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and just that, you know, I guess mapping that on to the bewilderment of grief or the bewilderment of childhood or, you know, having the ability to move in some places and not other places. And we're having, um, yeah, incredible access to some things through whatever maneuver or procedure um, you can you can do it. Um, but yeah, that act of seeing yourself as someone else um, has always been kind of fundamentally exciting to me um, that you could be somebody else. Um, yeah, so that looking at looking at yourself um, is is interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because it's the same thing when you watch porn. Actually, it's like you watch <laughs> you watch this thing and you you move in and out of the space like constantly. Like you imagine yourself as the person, and then you pull the image back into your head and think. You, you you witness the actual images happening and then you pretend you're embedded in the image and then you witness the image and you pretend you're in the image. And it's all accompanied by this <clears throat> in the same way as video games, this very simplistic, you know, repetitive bodily movement that you're doing when you watch, which is really fascinating. I mean, I think there's probably not to, I mean, I'm always willing to sort of go to bat for porn is much more complex um, than we give it credit for. But I would say it probably is way more complex with pornography because it's also accessing something that is so deeply individualized of, you know, each person's sexuality and sexual cues and prompts and all that sort of stuff. But there is something very similar there. Like there's this real, maybe this part of why people like video games is that they're, they're uh, an expression of the erotic, but not, not quite like that doesn't consume you know consummate the relationship yeah i mean i and i guess i mean i'd be you know interested in yeah consider i mean i you know i don't i don't have to hand like a you know a definition of erotic that i can i can go to that i can i can pull up with any kind of confidence but it again it seems to me that it might be related to to distance you know that that there is some you know uh, some distance that is not reconciled or overcome or some distance between one person and another person or between oneself and an image or something like that. Um, but all of that seems like distance to me, like that, that what is crucial for eroticism, I'm guessing, uh, I don't know, but it seems like it must involve an obstacle um, or a distance mm. um, to, yeah. of some kind, um, you know, <clears throat> that, that there must be something that can't be overcome. And in that way, like I totally see um, a connection definitely between, um, you know, the idea of the, of the, you know, of the visual image of, of the, you know, the body that doesn't ever get close to it, but you can imagine yourself into it, but you must come out again and into it, you know, mm. you must come out again. Mm. Like I, can, I can definitely see a, a similarity there. Um, but I mean, I guess when I was playing Mario, it was maybe a year or two before I used the internet for the first time. Um, and I don't mean the internet as a, um, as necessarily, necessarily as a repository of images, but I, I think what the internet 
you know, for my imagination to have been formed around the time that I was, you know, using the internet as a nine-year-old or ten-year-old or something, and trying to understand, um, you know, what images are like to be able to summon an image of something, um, you know, just by typing its name. I mean, that's a similar procedure to, you know, all the things that people have been persecuted for for a number of uh, hundreds or thousands of years. You know, that you can make something appear by calling its name. Um, I mean, all that stuff really thrills me, um, and that. You know, I, I wonder to what extent my experiences of, of using the internet um, inform how I think about images, how I think about everything. Um, I mean, at, at that, I mean, I, I, I guess, yeah, it's, it's a thrilling, a thrilling aspect for me. Yeah, well, so you know, so we can we can move on from talking about games a little bit, but I just I really wanted to start there and linger there. One, just for people who weren't necessarily familiar with your work or maybe even that don't read that much poetry, but this becomes a way in, but more to the point, I think I've been really trying to figure out how this phenomena of games fits into the other things I'm interested in, you know, which is really spiritual, human centered individuality, um, that the, you know, phenomenology, that kind of stuff. And, you know, if someone asked me the other day, oh, do you play any video games or would you ever have someone who does games like a game designer on the show? And it's not that I wouldn't. It's just I, I have been struggling to find what I think is interesting about them, even though I might play them and have fun. I have to sort of stand back and be like, yeah, but what is it? And your book actually really helped uh, relevate you know, games for me, it, it, it brought it into this sort of spiritual quality. Um, even though you're saying, no, it's not about games, but it carries the game there, you know, I mean, and part of that is just deciding I'm going to put a game where no one ever really dies in close proximity with the dead with death. And I think that that's part of it. It's like putting those two, together suddenly you get the healing effect of the presence of the dead right next to the presence of the game. And so it was a pretty profound experience to read this book. Um, but I would like you to read another poem from a different book now um, from your book oils, which is a basically a chapbook that came out before uh, if all the world and love were young. Um, this poem is called The Death of Horses. The Death of Horses. The Death of Horses haunts the horses, sours gallons of parochial milk, and rots the berries on the cane. The bones of horses keep arranged largely in their living shape. A rib or thigh bone missing here, carrion clumped around a hoof as though death was elsewhere overthrown. A skeleton growing back its flesh, the pastern gaskin stifle loin. Those horses left to fly graze a hillock of granite, weed and ankle break have died a death of intervals. The mind boggles. That is to say the mind is full of ghosts, which is to say the mind haunts itself its own black mane, its obsidian. Iron chimes at intervals on the stone as coronets fester and one by one the shoes drop off. 
Iron echoes piecemeal across the valley. Its memory strides home past maggots in the ditch, through some farmer's scalping floorboards, up through his son's shivering bones, whom he tries again to coax to sleep. The river curses TV static. It's too dark, and not dark enough. Hmm. That's a very, and that is a very dark poem. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's strange. You know, I remember, I have a very strange memory of working on this on like Christmas Eve, uh, 2013. I was sitting in a cafe. Um, what a life, eh? Um, so yeah, this is this is a lot older. This is published in 2014. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of a lot of stories at the the time, um, or I'd, I'd read something um, online where you know, I guess there was a phenomenon where where horses. Um, I suppose shortly after the financial crash in 2008, I would think is probably what precipitated this. But a lot of people, you know, couldn't afford to keep horses. Some were farmers. Some were people who, you know, loved having a lot of money and loved having horses as symbols of that wealth. Um, but they became too expensive, so people would drive them into the sort of you know rural wilderness somewhere and simply abandon them mm. um, because you know because the cost was was too great. So they would just sort of graze around until they didn't anymore. So I think there was you know like a kind of mass grave of of horses um, finding. I've got a feeling it was in County Tyrone um, in mm. Northern Ireland. Um, I've got a feeling that's where it was. But yeah, just reading this and feeling absolutely horrified, you know, at, at this prospect of uh, of someone very consciously doing this and knowing what they were doing um, and and driving away. It was just a kind of a horrifying um, thought for me. Uh, do you think that? Do you think that the? Um, do you think that that's something that permeates your work with in which horses? come up constantly and there's certainly in your upcoming book Cheryl's Destinies which I I love the Freudian misreads that poetry affords you because I'd read that as Cheryl's densities for like up until today basically and then I looked I was like oh it's Cheryl's Destinies right even though you, you say the two things and <laughs> use the two words in one poem but um but yeah I mean just horses I mean they're just they're running <laughs> They're they're uh, running and falling over in the pastures of your mind. <laughs> they are, and I don't know what that's about, really. Um, you know, I guess I'm in, you know I'm interested in horses the way anybody's interested in horses. I'm interested <laughs> in uh, the horse as uh, the horse as technology, right? You know, um, yeah. Uh, it's just is... a great pickup line. <laughs> hey, I'm interested in horses the way anybody's interested in horses. You know what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't? You know, not many people don't like horses. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I guess I'm interested, you know, I'm interested in them as kind of, you know, as creatures. I've never had many close dealings with horses, but as a kind of, you know, I, and it's not maybe right to call them a technology, but I guess someone like um, Ford makes them a technology, right? Doesn't he say if, if people, if he had asked people what they wanted before the motor car, they'd have said a faster horse. Um, mm. Is that a sort of approximation of what he said? Um, so that's an act. That, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's what makes a, it kind of makes a horse a technology, um, or I guess it was before that too. Um but I guess, you know, as, as uh, in a kind of metaphorical sense, um, you know, a, a horse is, and I, you know, I'm not making a series of puns here, but, a, you know, a horse is a, is a kind of a, a translator, right? A horse is what you use to take one thing from one place to another um, hmm. in, the, in a very loose metaphorical sense, um, or it's something that bears a load um, in the way that, you know, again, a, a translation is, is something that bears um, or, or, you know, something that is born across. Um, so I guess you know I'm I'm really interested in 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 the horse in this sense. You know, there's something kind of magical about this thing that makes 
that collapses distance um, uh, between two places, not literally, but, you know, one, mm -hmm. one moves on it. And I think I even, you know, I can't remember where I was coming across it, but occasionally going on a little um, frolic across um, etymology, you know, and, and I remember finding something somewhere. Uh, it might well have been a misreading. But that, you know, the words horse and bridge in some language uh, were very close. You know, that the idea of, of a horse being a static thing or a thing that moves from one um, image to another. Um, so, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm into horses in, in various ways, um, I guess. Although I suppose what um, this poem that I, I read, The Death of Horses, was about. Um, I mean, it's about cruelty. It's about, you know, um, how people do cruelty uh, to to creatures, to other people, um, how they make suffering happen. Um, and, you know, it, it's something that I guess I'm, you know, interested in to some extent, you know, is, is, is how, how violence is, is cyclical, how it comes back again, um, how one act of violence might be met with, um, not necessarily a kind of uh, cosmic justice, but how these things tend to tend to happen. So I guess this is a poem that is. Um, I mean, it's kind of a curse, right? I mean, it's it is <laughs> saying that this will come back. You know, I kind of hope this comes back. I'm complicit in that cruelty coming back, which is not a not a quality that I'm you know I'm, I'm delighted about in myself. But when I encounter you know things like this that are marvelous um, marvelous acts of cruelty, you know, part of me thinks I kind of hope this is this comes back in some shape or form. Hmm. And do you think, um, so I had Zachary Schomburg on the show a while ago, a poet, and uh, he said this great thing because I, I, I kept sort of prodding him on why <laughs> hummingbirds and deer kept appearing in his poems and I think uh, jaguars as well. And I was like, Zachary, what is up? You know, and he said, I've actually been indexing my po my poetry books lately so I can look at my own unconscious. And um, I know that you, like I said before, you, you listed all the nouns um, <laughs> in, uh, in If All the World and Love Were Young at the end as the credits. But I'm wondering if you have noticed that, like the, just the words that keep coming and coming and coming for you um, and that, you know, won't, won't let up, <laughs> won't let you out of your sight, let you out of their sight and uh, what you think is happening there. I, I, I wonder, I wonder about the horses. I'm not sure about the horses. Um, I, I don't know where they're coming from. I have, I think part of me would be a little concerned um, to do that to myself, um, to, <laughs> to wonder, you know, where these, these things are coming from. Um, I mean, it's one of the it's one of the reasons, I suppose, why I'm really interested in 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 poems that take visual sources as their you know as their origins as their originating points, because it is this way of getting outside of my own um, you know set of uh, set of images that I, I rely on so much, or getting away from my own subconscious. Of course, I do instinctively, I, you know, I'm drawn to images that um, confirm or correspond with with things that are in my own uh, my own imagination. So I can't really escape that to some extent. Um, but I feel as like I'm always trying to get away from myself. I'm always trying to you know start a you know with an image elsewhere and bring it towards me um, rather than start from me and go outwards. Um, so I don't know about that set of uh, symbols or um, or concerns that are probably motivating me. Uh, part of me is worried about knowing what they are. <laughs> well, sometimes I feel like if they all just kind of got together in the room, you know, um, uh, 
you know, hummingbird, deer, jaguar, whatever. Like if all these animals and words got together in the room, they might, they might do something. Like if they're all hanging out together, <laughs> they might do something to you to see them all in the same space. So maybe it's wise, you know, to avoid casting that own divination yourself, you know, I'll just do it and I won't tell you, you know, and it'll be fine. I'd, I'd be glad. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad that you kind of like the list of, uh, or at least we're interested in the kind of list of nouns at the, at the end of if all the world in love were young. Cause yeah, I mean, I guess I had this sense where I, you know, I was doing a couple of things that I think are kind of cheeky. Um, if I can, if I can say that, I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, I literally wanted to thank things for their appearances. You know, the idea that I am borrowing the likeness of something, or, or that first poem that I, that I read. Um, you know, uh, not, uh, not things themselves, but the, the seeing of them. Um, you know, and I, I felt that I had to, you know, thank these these things for allowing me to use their likenesses. So my house, uh, Yoshi, hallucinogenic mushrooms, uh, mitosis, my mother, photography, light, libidus position, economy. Um, just all this this list of stuff that I, I kind of wanted to, yeah, thank them for letting me borrow them um, mm, mm. for the purposes of the game. Um, but I mean, I guess as well as that, the, the kind of cheeky thing that I wanted to do, uh, I suppose, is... You know, if I have a, a a kind and compassionate and dedicated reader, um, which I am very grateful to have, uh, I could kind of convince them to read the book twice. Um, <laughs> and like the whole book happens like twice over those final, uh, you know, the final set of pages. Um, so there is this sense of yeah, of having the having the book read twice. You know, just with cutting out all the all the ligaments, just the the stuff. Um, but also it has a kind of, you know, um, as, as they say, a kind of life flashing before one's eyes kind of effect that all of this just zips past um, in three pages. Um, I would, uh, three or four pages. I would argue that one doesn't get quite the same effect um, <laughs> of, of reading it. But if, if, you know, if you're pressed for time and you want to get a good gist of uh, what's going, um, the, the, the last five pages uh, pretty much get the point across. Are you, uh, do, have you ever read that out loud? No, I haven't. Um, I, I've, I've sort I of, won't ask you to, but yeah. I'm just interested to see if the experience of all the nouns tumbling out of your mouth, uh, what that felt like. I, it's an interesting question, actually. I wondered about, uh, I, I've never really thought about about reading that. That's kind of strange. Because, I mean, one thing that I've, I've noticed, um, you know, I, and I perceive so much by the unconscious that I, I, I don't, as I've maybe indicated, there are a lot of things that I sort of don't want to know about myself. Um, and I wonder about looking at them too closely, I'll, I'll discover something that I really want to know. Um, but what I have discovered is that there is a strange kind of relationship um, in this book between between poetry and prose, um, you know, where, I mean, all the, all the poems, um, all the poetic content, you know, is in these long 16 syllable lines that are, you know, pretending to be the processor of the Super Nintendo. Um, but those bits that are in prose, um, that's a lot closer to to me, you know, as in me, literally the the person who wrote the book, um, because there is this there is this sense, um, you know, one of my little epigraphical um, quotes at the start. Uh, there's one from I, th- well, I don't know, I find this kind of funny. Uh, one from Susan Sontag, one from John Ashbery, and then the final one, it's a me, Mario. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> You know, and and you know, there's what I guess happens at the start of this is this 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 moment of, you know, I am Mario. You know, I, I you know this this the person saying this takes on this 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 identity. Um, they are either no longer themselves um, alone, um, or at all. Um, you know, they're either you know some combination of self and Mario going through this this world. Um, 
but you know that and that's sort of something that persists with all the with, you know everything that's in lines but those bits that are in prose i.e those credits um i feel like that's this movement of of getting back to oneself you know moving out of this fantastical world um into mm. the real world i mean that's that's the argument of the book you know is it better to live in this um slightly more comfortable um world of symbols um even if that isn't how things really are um or is it better to to be you know to accept what has happened to 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 grieve you know like do you do you go into denial or don't you um is is basically the the argument of of this book i think um and so poetry and prose seem to animate both sides of that with the poetical mm. bits seem to be willing to stay in this world they seem to be willing to stay in um the the world of fantasy and comfort um and idealism um where those bits in prose um seem to indicate um you know just accepting what has happened um, and trying to be realistic and trying to grieve properly. Um, so yeah, so there's there's a very strange relationship I find between between poetry and prose and uh, that prose bit, that that list of credits. Um, that seems to fall on the side of, you know, accepting what has happened. So to sort of deepen the uh, the presence of death here, <laughs> I'm wondering if you would read uh, Donut Ghost House. Donut Ghost House. What is there to be afraid of? Whatever moves in the rafters, a sparrow's nest in the chimney stuck with hay and pigeon feathers, a knock, knock, knock on the slate roof is hello, yourself long ago, and hello, an after image after all, one image pressed to and escaping through another. As the world of the living peers out into the world of the dead, as the aisle is full of noises, as the draft catches the blue door, as its keyholes made of nothing, as the fireplace crackles and offers the light of the forest, the sparrow leaves its nest of eggs, or maybe the sparrow doesn't. Yeah, so that there's that reclamation again, you know, it's really beautiful. Uh, the, at the end of that poem and you know so for people who don't remember super mario world so well it's like in the ghost world there are these little ghosts that follow you but only when your back is turned when you when you're looking right at them they're completely still and not active i mean unfortunately for the point i'm about to make they're malicious when they start actually moving around. <laughs> um Whereas I would sort of prefer them to be happy. Um, but, but I feel like that there is something there that, you know, um, you know, the world of the living peers out into the world of the dead. Um, I think that there's some, there's something really lovely in that line. It's not as if we're just being looked upon by the dead through that sort of two-way or that what one-way glass where it's a mirror on one side and a window on the other but actually we're looking upon the dead and then when our back is turned <laughs> or when we're not looking directly at them they come for us that's my experience of these lines of the poem actually in conjunction with the I'm not saying that that's what you thought as you wrote it, but my, my experience as I as I read it and thought of it in conjunction with that level, that there is a certain way 
where when we look for the dead, sure, we, we, we see them there, but they only become active when we stop looking. And um, he's Connor. Yeah. Wow. That, that's not something I had, I had considered when I was, I was writing this, um, and which is strange to me because I guess, um, yeah, that's a really kind of obvious and interesting, um, well, maybe not so obvious, but yeah, as a, as a, as a metaphor, the sense of looking, um, yeah, of looking at something or, or, uh, yeah, that's, that's when it gains its, its sort of, yeah, agency or, or, or power or whatever. I mean, I guess I was definitely aware of this sense of, um, yeah, I guess of, of thinking of which is which has greater you know, kind of primacy. You know, the world of the living peering out into the world of the dead. I mean, to me, I guess suggests um, suggests a limit, suggests a threshold that that we, the living, um, are, are sort of contained in. Um, that the mm-hmm. that the the freer space, the, the the liberated space, is is that of is that of the dead. Um, that we are we're peering out into it um, as a kind of not exactly a siege, but uh, it was something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, what you've said, I, I think is, yeah, it's really extraordinary to think about. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a it's really interesting kind of little metaphorical moment in that game that I've never thought about before. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the the agency that the, the dead take on when we're, when we're not confronting it or we're, we're aiming not to look at it. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's really, it's extremely interesting. Do you feel now having written the book? Are you? Are you I mean, <laughs> I guess in general, do you feel the presence of the dead? Do you feel, you know, my my mom died when I was twenty four, right? And um, and then you know, this woman who is like my second mom, Lynn Margulies, she's a really well known scientist that I. I did an episode with her. <laughs> I recorded my, I rec- I have the last recorded conversation with her before she died way before I had a show. And so I used it, turned it into an episode because she died in 2011. And I felt her presence way more actually than the presence of my mother after, after she died. But now I think I really feel deeply connected to the dead um, quite connected. And I don't know if this book brought you closer to that world. If you feel connected, if it feels banished, if you're, if you're, if your mom feels translated into a different world, if she feels like she's by your shoulder, what's happening? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I've got a sort of complicated relationship with that thought because I mean, maybe I'll say, first of all, well, not really your thought, but just with, with, uh, maybe how the question of consolation, right, which is maybe not exactly what you're asking, but I think it's maybe involved in, in some way. Um, because, you know, I, I guess I did not seek consolation from doing this. You know, I, I think one of the ways that we think about um, about poems or we think about how um, writing works or how writing and, and powerful emotion can, can work is that it's got to do with some kind of exorcism or it's got to do with consolation. Um, and that was not an impulse that that I had. I mean, my initial impulse was silliness that I'll write a book about Mario because wouldn't that be fun? Um, you know, I was I was writing about you know all the other big moments of, um, you know, I, maybe you know you know this this term um, uh, ekphrasis that is you know used uh, as the I guess a word that's used to describe poems written after paintings broadly, mm-hmm. um, where where the the poet seeks to describe um, what that painting looks like. Um, and you know, I was writing lots of poems like this. Um, 
you know, and, you know, in this great tradition that has things like Auden in it, or it has, you know, one of the first moments is, is Homer uh, doing it. You know, like, why wouldn't I sort of involve this tradition um, in, you know, with, with Mario, you know, another object of visual art. So I was starting with silliness to do this. Um, but at a certain point, yeah, I, I realized that I was, I was writing a kind of um, elegy um, and decided to go with that. But as far as consolation is concerned, I mean, what I wanted, I think, was not to forget. Um, you know, so I was 21, 22 when my mother died. Um, and, you know, as the book suggests, I mean, she, she had cancer and it was, it was something that was um, prolonged over a couple of years, I guess. Um, you know, so it was, um, it was something that we came to, you know, came to understand a little bit. But I think I wanted not to forget. That was like my main impulse, that however difficult this was, I didn't want to forget it. Um, and I think, you know, with, with all these lines towards the end where, as I say, the, the game becomes self-aware, so my book must become self-aware. Um, you know, these phrases about like wanting to make a monument out of something. I mean, what I wanted to do is to intertwine this story of, of you know, recollection of, of like sickness and and death and childhood um you know by creating a kind of mnemonic where i intertwined this with the video game um you know that i wouldn't forget that that if i if i interpreted um mario alongside this experience of death that i would create this kind of mnemonic that was so potent that i wouldn't have to carry this i wouldn't have to carry these images myself i would kind of store them um i would store them uh, retroactively in the video game you know so that when i see this i will see my childhood again, you know, that I'll, I'll make these things go together. Um, so whether or not that is consolation, I don't know. It wasn't an ambition of mine. Um, I, I wanted to, in a kind of strange way, I wanted to make my very private experience. Um, I wanted to secure it by blending it into um, an extremely public object, um, mm -hmm. which is, you know, Mario. Um, mm. Yeah. Well, isn't there, isn't there like a backstory about Super Mario? Super Mario in general, where like the bricks were actually the people of Super Mario Land, <laughs> like, and they got turned into bricks by Bowser. And then actually you're like, oh shit, I'm actually destroying all the people to extract their value. <laughs> you know what? I didn't know that. I must look that up. <laughs> wow. That's kind of horrifying. But, um, well, anyway, I, so, but I, I, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I was asking more of a just sort of the presence of the dead in your life in general, but particularly your mom, you know, and I, I, so I was relating that to the process of you writing the book, but it doesn't necessarily have to be related to the process of the book. It just seems like, uh, you know, I was thinking about their presence in general. I mean, you seem interested in these, you seem interested in the question of the dead and the, the sort of mysterious, the mysterious world, you know? Um, so I, I was, I was wondering about that, but you don't have to answer it also, you know, you can, you can keep it in the game if you want. I mean, I, I mean, I feel, I mean, I don't really, I don't know how I feel about the, about the dead as, as such. I mean, I, I mean, I guess for someone who thinks about it, um, a lot. I mean, it's a it's a frightening prospect. I mean, it is it is not something that I am comfortable with. I don't think I'm one of those people who's um, necessarily com uh, you know comfortable with the idea. Um, I mean, I plan not to. Um, if, uh, <laughs> if if uh, if there's anything I can do about it, I'll let you know um, how that goes on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> sure. 
Sure. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I guess I, I guess I feel, um, I feel uncomfortable about it. I mean, maybe it's, it's something that's going to, um, as they say, change as one, uh, one grows older, that you, you become a little more accustomed to the idea of it. Um, I don't know. I really like stuff. I mean, I really like, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in is, is technologies. And when I think of um, what the world is like now compared with, you know, in 1995, um, for example, like 20 years ago, I mean, it's kind of unimaginable. And I, I, part of me is very frustrated at the idea that um, I don't get to see how things keep changing. Um, that frustrates me. Um, and I should be grateful that for the, the section um, of, of the universe that I, that I have. Um, but part of you know, that I don't get to, I don't get to see everything that that frustrates me. Well, yeah, I mean, in, uh, unless, as I experience, is true that reincarnation is a real thing, and then you get to actually see every single aspect of it again and well, again. You know. Well, I mean, I'm I'm sort of open to the idea that, um, yeah, that one might find oneself reincarnated simply by having the thought that I might have been somebody else once. I mean, that yeah. feels like that feels like it might be a, a moment of awakening that, um, that is that is. It makes the whole thing probable. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also hor- it's also a horrifying thought of reincarnation. I mean, I've talked to a bunch of people about, you know, the end of the world on this show. And, you know, I always say like, you know, actually like the end of the world is that's so easy, you know, compared to the, to the fact of like the fact that it would be easy, like that would be the easy way out. But actually the real horror is that we just keep living and living and living and living. <laughs> we never stop dying, you know? I mean, we never actually die or stop to die. So I don't know, maybe your determination to uh, not die is actually the the, the horror story of <laughs> that will come yeah. true. We'll see. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it's actually also really wonderful <laughs> But I'm wondering, so you have a new book um, coming out this summer and, you know, hopefully, I, I, I hope to have like a sort of poetry focused show and maybe have a few people on. So maybe after that, the book comes out, we can talk again too. But I would love for you to read a few poems from that. Um, and and the book, as I mentioned, is called Cheryl's Destinies. Destinies. And um I would love for you to read my second favorite locked room mystery. <laughs> yeah, big title. Um, my second favorite locked room mystery. Since I started working at the bowling alley, I think about it all the time. In his barn, from a high rafter or crossbeam, a man has hanged himself with no ladder or platform to get him there. Nothing suspicious, save a patch of damp on the straw-strewn dirt floor. Cheryl, on the other hand, is really into tarot. When the soda fountain's not so busy, she shuffles up my destiny, and every time seems to draw the lovers. Think about it, flashes the braces in her smile, and the pen setters chew like beautiful mouths. Thinking about the future always makes me so thirsty. So while Cheryl sorts out pin jams and inventories the shoes, I slurp a Coke with plenty of chipped ice. And before long, my head is full of icemen and their cold chariots, horse-drawn ice plows, the lakes of Massachusetts. 
When she's fed up with kismet, Cheryl lets me build little card castles. And I sometimes think I could marry her some hot day in the summer. An ice sculpture of a bowling pin undoing itself into a puddle of water at the highest of June. And I think of his horses. What were their names? So, <clears throat> you know, in this in this book, we find a lot of the kind of magical occult accoutrement, Mercury retrograde, astrology, werewolves, um, and mystery. I mean, mystery keeps coming up, and you have a whole section about about the dead and the living, which we'll talk about in a minute, but I'm wondering about that. Um, and if I, if you don't mind me saying so, you know, when, when we were emailing back and forth to set up the show, you said you have some, some connection to this occult stuff, but I don't understand what it is yet, you know? And uh, so I was not surprised, but sort of pleasantly enthusiastic to see some of these things you know, these symbols and, and systems showing up in the new book. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's something that I am, uh, you know, whatever the grade below novice is, I am, I am that, um, when it comes <laughs> to these things, like, you know, they've just become like interesting. Uh, you know, I've always had this, this interest in, in this kind of, on the, you know, the, the, the phenomena of, of the occult, um, you know, it's from, it's from reading like, you know, books of, books of unsolved mysteries as a young person and, you know, thinking like, well, what is the Bermuda Triangle? What am I, yeah, what am I, you know, eight-year-olds shouldn't be reading this, but I guess I I was. Um, or reading about, you know, bizarre phenomena of, you know, of time slips and all this this kind of strange stuff that just really got into my imagination. Um, I think that as, I think that really accounts for the stuff, you know, the the idea of tarot or the idea of whatever other kind of objects of, of, you know, reckoning or, or divination there might be. Um, but I guess what I, I, I'm most, I'm using them really in a metaphorical sense here, I think, um, you know, and, and I guess the idea of what reading is um, and who is, um, and I guess, you know, who an author is and who, who a reader is. I mean, I guess the the responsibility, um, and please, please correct anything I'm imprecise about here. Um, you know, I guess the person who, um, when it comes to tarot, right, the person who, uh, who, is responsible for the cards is the person who reads them. The person who spreads the cards is the person who reads them, i.e. interprets them. And I guess I'm interested in, in what my relationship is um, as a, as a writer to a reader. You know, I, I kind of love the idea of these texts um, that admittedly I am responsible for, um, but I'm not responsible for their meaning. You know, I'm not really responsible for interpretation. I can guide it in certain ways, you know, by, you know, all the suggestions of how language works. Um, you know, they're, things are going to have certain meanings. But I really like the idea, I suppose, um, of, of a poem or a text or whatever going off and finding its own meaning. Um, and, and I guess the agency of a reader in that context is something I'm really interested in. Um, whether or not, of course, any of this necessarily comes across, I don't know. But I, I feel as I'm, I'm, I like to set up these opportunities um, of what this act of reading is, of what this act of um, interpretation is, um, of, of how we make meaning. Um, and I guess the other thing to say about tarot, again, I know very little about it, but I, I noticed that I invoke at least two, I think, uh, cards in this uh, in this poem. Um, I didn't know the, uh, the the hanged man was there in the first place, but nevertheless, mm -hmm. there is one right at the start of this poem that I didn't put there. 
Um, but I guess this is the sort of thing that I mean, where you know, I'm I'm interpreting from my own subconscious to some extent. Like I, I you know, I don't know why these um, icons appeal to me, um, but nevertheless, they're there. Um, and to say just one other thing about um, you know the whole ekphrasis thing, you know, this idea of interpreting. Mm paintings, visual objects. I mean, that strikes me as being a very similar practice, you know, that um, that one interprets from these symbols and icons and images. Um, you know, you find a context for them within a person's life is my um, understanding uh, of, of how a reading um, of, of how tarot might work. So I guess I find myself like really interested in all of these practices, but from a slightly different way um, or, or a slightly different angle. Um, and yeah, I don't know, does that sound broadly... Accurate. I hope I haven't said anything that's inaccurate. Well, at, at no, the best, no. There's nothing. <laughs> there's no. There's no way to t- the the way you talked about it. There's no way to say something inaccurate in there. I don't think that there's a really beautiful book. It's. I think it's one of the most beautiful books ever written. Actually, it's called Meditations on the Tarot, and it's by anonymous. But we all know who the anonymous is right now, which is this um Catholic. <clears throat> occultist who was he was previously an anthroposophist, meaning he was part of Rudolf Steiner's um, group, uh, and then converted to Catholicism, Valentin Tomberg. And each chapter of the book is a spiritual meditation on one of the cards. It's not doesn't tell you how to read tarot or anything like that, although you might get some tips from it. But it's intensely evocative. And um it's funny because something in that book has come to mind a few times since we've been talking, which is, you know, the, the appeal to the unconscious, he kind of gives a little bit of a warning against it (laughs) where he says something like, um, we must, we must stop plunging into the something. I'm going to get it wrong. But he's like, we must stop plunging in the darkness, expecting the angels to save us when we make art. Um, But in fact, like, it, it's there, there might be a different process there, which I don't know. I don't know where I stand on that. I mean, I think that there's a, there's a development of artistic process where we actually need to just throw ourselves in and hope to be saved, you know, um, with the art in our hand, you know, the, the object, the writing, the painting, whatever it is. But I imagine somebody sitting there with these cards laid out and just thinking about them, letting them, the images work in him in a way that is similar to poetry, but does not produce poetry, you know, at the end. So I, I like that you just keep bringing up this process with the, the, the paintings and what's the Alden poem? The late, le, what is it? It's Musée de Beaux-Arts. That's that what one. it is. Yeah. Yeah. The old masters. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great poem. Um, I'll put that in the show notes for people. Cause it's really, this is a really beautiful poem, but the, and there's also a John Burnside poem about the the skaters on the pond. Oh gosh, yeah, it's a Bruegel painting. Uh, yes, oh, I'm so glad you know that one. Yeah, that was a, such a beautiful. That's such a beautiful poem as well. Um, but go ahead, go ahead. What did you? Oh, no, I was going to say. I mean, like, I, I wonder where all this is coming from for me personally. And I, I you know, and I, I don't mean to to circle back, but you know, it's it's about you know, it's about images. It's being about thrilled uh-huh. by images. You know that that all of this is part of that process for <laughs> for my imagination is trying to understand how images work, um, and what our you know what our kind of responsibility is with images. Um, I mean, I, when I say, I guess. I mean, for me, and I, I mean it, I don't mean it disrespectfully. I mean, I'm using things like the tarot, like the subconscious as the subconscious less so, but there's a metaphorical impulse here and just trying to understand like, where is all this coming from? And, 
you know, at I guess when I think about where where does a poem come from, uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that poems are, you know, that a poem is in is in the future. You know, the the poem that I start working on last night, it's it's still in the future, and I am I am bringing it towards me. Mm. You know, either I'm bringing it towards me or I'm going towards it. It's probably more the latter. But nevertheless, you know, th- there is this there is this idea of a, a finished poem that is in the future that I'm working myself towards, um, either by moving through time or by um, by drawing it towards me. Um, and I, I sort of think with something like tarot, that's as good an interpretation of the future as anything else is. Um, and I, I guess what I'm getting at, um, I think, um, is trying to understand my own imagination um, is what, you know, the tools that I use to bring that poem closer to me. Um, this thing that's in the future. Um, what is my imagination doing? Um, and I guess I like thinking of of the poem being in the you know in the future of the event, um, mm. rather than the event being in the past of the poem. If that if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, I mean, it's interesting because I think the po- poems are a book of poetry lends itself to although this might be upsetting to a poet, lends itself to the reader's experience of bibliomancy more than than other forms of writing. Because with a book of poetry, one might tend to not read it in order, you know, unless it unfolds in a certain way um, as, a, as a narrative, um, we might jump around. I mean, certainly when I read If All the World and Love Were Young, I read it uh, with the walkthrough, which meant that I was getting the special world way before, you know, I was doing this sort of like Cortazar thing of like jumping to the back of the book and then back in and like moving forward again. Right. So I wasn't reading it in the order that you intended um, that time at least. Uh, But I think a lot of people open up a book of poetry to a poem and read it, you know, and it gives them something in their day rather than reading all the way through which is, you know, again, maybe that's frustrating <laughs> to a poet who orders the poems in a certain way. Um, but I think I think to move into actually this section of your book, of your new book, where instead of doing a spatial thing, there's actually a temporal thing, which is you put – Yates and Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins together. Um, you 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 create a you, just like you were saying the horse collapses distance, like you collapse time in a way, and you put these two people in in, in well, you bring them together through po- through a poem, or maybe you um, bring a poem together through them, and. So there's a whole section for people that don't know. Yes, there's a whole section that's about, you know, the blending of Smashing Pumpkins and and, and Yeats poems and their conversation. And I think that you have this, like, yeah, this traversing time back and forth there. And so it seems like you've moved into a, in that part of the book, at least, there's not the spatial object image dimension exactly, but you've moved into something else entirely with time. And I have to say, although you might object to this, for me as a reader, those poems are actually less imagistic. Um, they don't read with the the um the solidity of images as much as the other ones. It's a, there's there's a lot more sound and a lot more movement in them. Yeah, it's kind of a strange uh, symposium is like one of the words that seems relevant to it. I mean, you know, it's 
it's uh, kind of ridiculous, you know, what, mm-hmm. what, what that section is doing. Um, and I think it's doing, a, I hope it's doing a couple of things. I mean, it's, so, you know, I feel against most of my instincts, I feel some kind of responsibility, um, not because it would be useful, um, not necessarily because it would be interesting, but has, as a kind of historical person, um, you know, to, to respond in some way to the phenomenon um, of, of living through um, this, the, you know, the coronavirus through uh, through the lockdown. Um, but, you know, one, it's not interesting, I think, to treat that as a subject. Um, I think in whatever kind of writing or art that we, any of us might produce, I think um, coronavirus as a subject is not particularly thrilling, um, but as a context, it can be useful. Um but one of the things that I feel it has done um, on some level is, is it is it has prevented things happening together um, that, that people may not come together. There's an awful lot of like strange, you know, there's loads of seances uh, kind of in this book, or at least there's loads of people taking each other's hands, you know. Um, and that was one of the, 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 the first things that we were prevented from doing, um, I guess, uh, to, to, to deal with this. So I, I guess I'm thinking of, of this context as something that is responsible for separating uh not not necessarily uh, just people um but you know when when things generally are encouraged to stay in their isolated parts um i'm interested in how that affects something like metaphor or simile you know that 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 exists because it allows two things to come together and another meaning um to to come out of them um, so I've been thinking about that uh, on a really like base level of of what what other you know how is language affected by this um, what what does this make different or strange so you know I'm sitting around one day um, literally I, I date this as being like the twentieth of March which I guess is uh, approximately a year ago um, and you know just sitting around and thinking again this sort of process of mischief that led me to write about Mario but like just thinking like could I get could I get W B Yeats and Billy Corgan to talk to each other. Like, could I do that? You know, just out of this strange, like, strange metaphorical urge, like, to, to make them go together again. Like, could I make them, could I make them speak to each other? Mm. And spend all day and the next couple of days, like, trying to find ways of making them uh, speak to each other. And the other thing that I'm interested in with, with those two people is that they're both, like, they're both really serious men. And I'm wary of very <laughs> serious men. Um <laughs> And I like making fun of very serious men. Um, and, you know, I, I just like this idea that, um, you know, I, I could put these two people together um, and make them have this sort of strange conversation. You know, that, that Yeats goes and, you know, helps Billy Corgan uh, finish Siamese Dream, the the second album, uh, <laughs> this major section in my second book. Um, that he's sitting up, you know, Billy Corgan sitting up trying to finish the problem, uh, finish the album, having kicked out the rest of his band. Um, he's and you know who who fixes it? Yeats. Yeats is the person <laughs> who shows up in Georgia and and helps him finish this album. Um, on the other hand, you know Yeats is um, doing all this um, strange stuff with automatic writing that his wife is like literally um, making all this unbelievable stuff up and just saying it to him. Um, you know that Yeats's work is his wife's work um, at this period. You know, and, and she is uncredited for all of this, uh, largely uncredited for all of this. And I like the idea that one of the people um, that they spoke to um, in the future uh, was Billy Corgan. It just kind of cracked me up, but, you know, <laughs> that I could make these people speak to uh-huh. each other. Um, but, but I'm wary also, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the funny bit, you know, but, but under that is, is, all, is the darker stuff, you know, with like Yeats's um, flirtations uh, with fascism, um, with <laughs> difficult, uh, difficult politics um, expressed in our sort of modern era. 
Um, I say difficult, uh, difficult to me anyway. Um, but you know, just thinking about you know what's what is under the surface of all these these conversations. Um, what dangers are there? Um, what dangers are there when one decides to live in the future? Um, you know, uh, does living in the future excuse present? You know, if you know what the future is going to be, can you excuse actions in the present? Um, does it allow you to do things that uh, you shouldn't do because you're certain um, of a of a certain kind of future? Mm. Um, so all of these kind of you know I'm not I'm not necessarily endorsing um, the opinions of the fictionalized versions of Yeats and Billy Corgan that I have I've created, but <laughs> you know trying to understand this impulse of what it, you know about anxiety and the future and all this stuff and and what are the the sort of can there be consequences for certain kinds of people um, using the future you know, in opposition to the present um, or privileging an idea of the future, um, you know, uh-huh. golden age thinking, that kind of thing. I, and pulling from the past, right? Like the the album and, and, and Yates, but it's, a, it's interesting because I, you know, it's a hard not, well, for me at least hard not to think of James Merrill, you know, reading this part and the changing light of Sandover. And um, actually outside of that book, one of the Ouija board things he did with, uh, so shitty that I'm forgetting his partner's name right now, but um, with his partner, they contacted um, for a Paris review. They, they did, they did the same thing with the Ouija board. And they contacted Gertrude Stein, who told them that Auden was creating um, global warming and that it was all sort of a test for everybody to figure out stuff. And, you know, in, in some ways it was like, bringing a kind of poetic response into the world was Auden's like aim at helping create global warming and climate change so that it could be overcome with a different sense of, uh, of, of understanding the world. It's really, really beautiful, you know, and, and totally, I mean, some of changing light of Sandover is just like bonkers in the best way possible. But I, I think that appeal you know, it's, it's really, it's really amazing. But I, I, again, I'm like, I just want to bring it back to this time thing, you know, like um, the horse, there's a, a philosopher, Michel Serre, who I love. And he writes about time as if it's nothing like he, he'll write about two things happening at the same time um, that are thousands of years apart as if they're just happening in the same room. And it's always baffles people. And he says, no, I just basically, he's in an interview with Bruno Latour. He says something like, Oh yeah, I just, that's Hermes. That's what Hermes does for me. He just folds time together so I can just talk about these things at the same instant. And so you have like a time horse here, you know, (laughs) which I really, I really like uh, in, in this book. And um and it also makes me think about how you 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 mentioned this. I didn't realize it until you mentioned it, but you leave out all the commas mostly from "If All the World and Love Were Young," and commas are a, a function of time. You know, I mean, they're they're visual. They have a visual cue as well, but they really change the time sense. I mean, that little curve is like a is like the reminder to sort of bend the linearity of things as we as we go through. And so when you write and you leave that out, but you've brought them back in, uh, in the new, <laughs> brought that back, you've yeah. made some peace with them in the new book. Uh, I guess. Yeah. Reconciled with comments. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I mean, for me, when I was, when I was writing, um, 
you know, I sort of figured doesn't, in, you know, and I, this is my ignorance, I suppose, but um, I wondered about how one programs a comma, because I feel like a comma is an imprecise pause. I mean, I, I think it is context dependent. And I feel as though that is, um, I feel as though a, a human um, usage of, of, of language um, can, can make those calls better than, than a processor can um, or, mm-hmm. a, or, a, or a device can. So it felt inappropriate that, that you know, this, this book should have commas in it because I don't know how a Nintendo would understand what a comma is. Um, so it didn't feel right that this should be in here. But on the other hand, you know, it has this like these lines that just keep going, these unbroken lines that happen like like these big sweeps um, of how of how a processor might work, mm. and that they wouldn't be broken; they would go elsewhere. Um, which means there there are sort of they're not problems, but there are moments of um, more complex syntax that I hope sort of fold on to. Uh, you know, where where to talk about Mario, where he inter he interacts with obstacles. You know, these are the, the these exist in the syntax. Um, these these little knots mm. um, that that must be overcome. Um, but yes, reconciled with the comma. I mean, these the, the poems <laughs> in in this in this book, um, uh, the second book. Um, yeah, they're they're I think much more conventional uh, poems by you know by and large. I think they're pretty. Um, Pretty traditional lyric poems um, is the is the way I think about them. Um, I don't think there's anything particularly uh, radical necessarily about them, uh, stylistically or formally or anything like that. Maybe maybe um, maybe Nintendo's commas a, a the hitting the pause button. You know, I mean, maybe that's that's it. But like the comma is so overwhelming because the. <laughs> Because the Nintendo platform is game is you know it's all just one straightforward sort of movement with alterations within that left to right that like to to put a comma in is actually to stop the whole world that like it becomes so big you know the comma is like the biggest thing you can do <laughs> aside from turning it off or something like that but yeah but you're but it is you know I'm also thinking of there's that Ann Carson poem so this is where I I'll, I'll bring her in. Um, which is in the life of towns, the wolf town. Do you know that poem? It's, oh, I don't know if I do. Oh, it's, it's stunning because she uses periods and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, but she uses periods in the strangest way. So it's um like, there's a period. I'll just read a few lines where there's a period at the end of each line, let tigers kill them, let bears kill them, let tapeworms and roundworms and heartworms kill them, let them, you know? And so the period gives a different, a completely different time sense, you know, and maybe the period is actually closer to the pause in the game. I don't know, but it's like that punctuation. And it, it's really interesting to me how that inner sense of, of, it's not just an inner sense of emphasis. It's an inner sense of time. When we look at, when we look at punctuation in a poem um, and also in your poems where you like, there's a poem in uh, oils, yeah, young bean farmer, where you cascade the the words backwards across the page, and that also gives us a different sense of, you know, uh, I guess that maybe that's spatial, but it also feels temporal in there. So I don't know. I guess I'm. I guess this is all to say. I feel this sort of uh, <laughs> as I as I read your poetry in succession because I've been really hanging out with you pretty intensely before this meeting without you knowing it. I'm just noticing a turn to, to time, you know, a, a little bit. I don't know. 
Well, I, th- I think with that, with that poem you mentioned, the young bean farmer one. I mean, it, it is after a, an image um, by uh, Peter Doig, um, which is when I was like really into, I suppose the um, yeah the poems after paintings before I became kind of uh, kind of weary of it. Which is, it feels like such a long time ago since I was writing things like that. It's it's when I was uh, yeah wholesale into the poems after paintings thing, so I became kind of weary of that and uh, started you know writing about Mario instead. Um, but in in that particular painting, you know, there's a little figure um, like just under, uh, behind, on one side of this this big fence that's running down um, a landscape. Um, and I guess there's this sense of a a figure like running away from home. I think it's you know a child. Um, there is this sort of at least that's how I interpret it um, narratively. There's this sense of like a child um, or a young person, a young bean farmer, um, maybe maybe leaving, just maybe just leaving. You know, they're on the other side of this fence, and it comes down. Um, you know, in the in the the image, it comes you know right to left, um, and it's diagonal downwards line. Um, so yeah, I mean, I very obviously lifted that kind of shape for that painting. But I think with a poem, um, that is sort of the opposite of time. You know, if, if thinking of if, if left to right is the the syntax of, of of how we read poems, this is going the opposite way. This is you know, so we, we I guess we read it from the you know the future to the past, so to speak, this sort of staggering mm-hmm. thing. Um, and yeah, that's, I mean, so I guess there it's both temporal and spatial, very obviously more spatial, I think, than temporal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're right. Like I, I've come really lately um, to start thinking about um, about time and, and, you know, futures and pres- uh, presents and all that. I mean, it's partly, to, I mean, partly it's a couple of things. Time has gone really strange over this last <laughs> year. I don't know if you agree, but uh-huh. I, and it's, it's really strange, um, uh, and strange is the word I think we use very frequently. But time is time has started happening differently. It seems. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm also very aware, um, living in Northern Ireland, that uh, so we, we, 2021 is 100 years of the existence of Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, I'm aware of that as a sort of moment of time, and you know, as the rules of uh, horror films go, uh, certain anniversaries, you know, allow for certain things to recur. And I feel like a century, you know, is a kind of magical uh, doorway, you know, on the 100th anniversary of something, um, we have access to different things uh, in the same way that Halloween, you know, the veil is is thin. Um, so I guess I'm thinking about all different kinds of time. I'm thinking about the approximate 100 years since, you know, the last uh, major flu when Yates was hanging around. Um, you know, I'm, I guess I'm thinking about all the, this idea of a century of, of what that what is involved in that. Um, of it being a period of time that for most people is just outside their, um, well, more than just outside the, the scope of their lifetime. You know, it is beyond most people by a little bit. Um, and just the idea of these things happening, um, you know, in certain kinds of cycles um, is interesting to me. So, yeah, I've got very much into thinking about time and its uh, its curiosities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a great movie called Older Than Ireland, which is about it's a documentary about the oldest people in Ireland, um, many of them over a hundred years old, but just, but, but just, you know? And so you're right. It, it escapes most people. That anniversary uh, doesn't let you get to it, you know? Um, <laughs> and, you know, we've been, we've been living through those anniversaries, right? We're in the decade of centenaries in Ireland, you know, it's, mm. um, and depending where it starts, I mean, I guess for some of us in, in Northern Ireland or, or I was living in Belfast at the time, you know, 2012 was 100 years since the Titanic uh, mm. uh, went on its journey, as we know. And then 14, you know, is the start of the, the First World War. 16 is the Battle of the Somme and the Easter Rising, depending on mm. which way you want to look at it, and so on <laughs> and so on. And it feels like we're, 
you know, it, it, when does this decade end, you know, because it, you know, we're, we're going to be in the, you know, the, the century of centenaries, you know, and, and I guess that's something to do with how history is recorded, um, of, how, of how memory works and all, all those kinds of things. But we're always, we're always 100 years from something. Um, <laughs> right, right. Strange, you know, um, and I guess I'm increasingly interested in, in what we're 100 years away from, you know, and this is my, my sadness, my profound uh, disappointment that I won't be alive 100 years from now. Um, you know, well, where, you plan. You plan to be. I'm planning it. I'm planning it. Like, <laughs> who knows? Um, but you know, I'm, I'm feeling like a kind of connectedness. I mean, you know, it's it's one of the things that I feel as though I've learned about this last year um, is is maybe what we've learned about certain kinds of people is that there are people who see themselves as being part of a community where their actions matter for other people, um, or there there are people who see themselves as individuals moving through the world unaffected by other people. Um, and I guess those can be broadly broken down into who follows um, guidelines um, and who doesn't. Um, and you know, and I'm, I'm sort of thinking, I'm thinking about our certain kinds of responsibilities, not to, you know, whatever sense of community we can have, not with those people that we interact with or don't interact with or share society with, but you know, like what, you know, who we share time with. You know, the, the actions that we take now will affect people a hundred years from now, even if I'm not around to see them. But, you know, to be part of that kind of community as well, um, however fanciful maybe it is, but to think of this sort of society as, a, as something unbounded by time, you know, that it's not just the coincidence of one place at one time, but, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, well, won't it be lovely, like, if you do, if you do, in fact, die, um, <laughs> if, if uh, you know, in 2088, some some person uh, or, or, or later, maybe, I, maybe I cut your you, life too short there, but like, you know, you know that my, I was born in 88. So that's the perfect. Uh, years, perfect. Know. So in 2088, you know, someone will write uh, a, a cycle of poems about you meeting the uh, grunge musician of the, of the day. Um, but I think, uh, I think we should end with you reading one last poem about, well, maybe not about horror as you brought up, but about terror um, called terror from uh, Cheryl's destinies. And um, I'm going to just let you read it. And then that will be the end of the show. So I just want to say, I'm just very happy to have this conversation with you. And uh, yeah, I'm de- I, I love reading your poetry. Yeah. Thanks Connor. I'm delighted. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And uh, here's the last poem. <laughs> terror. First arrived a pair of antique broadswords, passed point to pommel through the letterbox in a jute sack with no return address. Lancelot, Melian, Galahad, oh, all the knights we know are dead. We changed light bulbs all morning, unpacked books, bled radiators. Albert on the lawn introduced himself to each of the daffodils and we began to live there and Scorpio slipped into Sagittarius. Some daggers made from cassowary bone came bubble-wrapped, and anthropologists of some renown determined their origin to be Papua New Guinea, mid-18th century. Housewarming gifts, we told little Albert. Though we loved the moon, the moon could not defend us, loving as it does the sea. For weeks we slept like avocados, an avocado is its own unit of time, we thought, goosebumped and spoiling in our bedroom. Had we known the werewolves were so many, we, we, we would not have come, my wife said to Albert. 
He loves werewolves the way terror has an opposite. They cannot be themselves responsible for what night does, she said. Letters came floating by with directions to anywhere else but our cul-de-sac in the heebie-jeebie script of werewolves. Then came the trebuchet, flat-packed, assembled in the garden one afternoon. The Kamov KA-60 Kasatka landed complete with two Russian pilots, both milk and two sugars. They missed their families, the steppes, the snow. St. Petersburg has its charms, said Sasha. Red Square is quite beyond compare, replied Sasha. An orca Esmeralda belly flopped on the lawn next to the helicopter, clicking curses like a massive handbrake. For Albert, we left. The world still has a big soft place for him. So we packed our things and set out for it. So long, daffodils. See you, sunflowers. He'll grow up to be kind as the daylight. Some tomorrow morning, the people stand naked in their mirrors, saying, I'm sorry for everything. I'm sorry. <laughs>